Amen. Do you want to say anything? Or is that it? Okay. Um. This is all nicely set up just before I want to move it, actually. If that's okay with everybody? Cool, that's heavy. That's better. Great. Thank you very much indeed. Am I okay on the sound? Is all that in order? As you know, Technical and I have a running battle. Did I tell you I once fitted air conditioning in our house, put it in the wrong way round? <laughs> it got cold outside. I told that once, Jeff Lucas was standing at the back. He said, did you really? Not really. <laughs> the idea of me fitting anything like air conditioning is quite funny, really. Good. Well, here we are. I want to share with you tonight on something which is very close to my own heart, and I trust that the Lord will, will touch each of us in a very personal way as we go through this evening. I want to talk about the God of Covenant because God is big on Covenant. Really big on Covenant. And it stems from the kind of God He is. Covenant is a theme that runs all the way through Scripture literally from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, don't worry, we're not going through <laughs> the whole lot tonight. But uh, I do want to try and pick up the thread through Scripture and then come to that wonderful covenant which involves you and me very personally. And as, as we run through, I think we will discover that at the heart of covenant is one very simple but very wonderful truth which is that God is passionate about having a relationship with you that lasts forever. That's what it's about. There's a lot more to it than that but that's the heart of it. He's passionate about having a relationship with you that lasts forever. So we're going to begin our journey and see where it takes us. In early biblical times, if you go back far enough, the idea of covenant was familiar to many cultures in the surrounding nations. So a covenant might be between two nations, rather like a treaty, or it might be between two individuals. So, for example, do you remember the Gibeonites when Joshua was going into Canaan? 
Gibeon was a city that lay just to the west, a little way west, of Jericho. Jericho's gone down, Ai's gone down, and they're absolutely desperate to make a covenant with Joshua before his armies rumble them. And uh, I'm sure most of us remember the story how they sent a delegation with armed with moldy bread and worn-out sandals because they wanted to try and trick him into thinking that they were actually a long way away and uh, of no interest to Joshua. And it worked. And they got their covenant, even though it was by deception. And uh, we discover that 300 years later, in the period of the kings, that covenant was still being honored. See, they knew if they could only get it, it would stand. David and Jonathan, on the other hand, would be an example of a covenant between two individuals. 1 Samuel 18.1, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because... He loved him as himself. So the covenant between them, not long after, was pretty severely tested. When Jonathan's father, King Saul, of course, started trying to kill David. Nothing serious, just trying to kill him. But their covenant, Jonathan and David, it held true. They were true to each other. It kind of didn't have an Article 50. It was, it stood. Interestingly, David Livingstone, the 19th century uh, Christian explorer, he uh, reported coming across in lots and lots of tribal situations, covenants, which were well, the way he put it, that he never ever heard or hardly ever heard of a covenant being broken. It's, it's, it's a practice which has been uh, across society for many millenniums. In our Western culture, I guess the covenant we would think of most readily would be that of marriage. Well, it used to be. It used to be. Hmm. Still is for some of us. I'm going to let you into a secret. Muriel and I, we began courting at the age of 16. Is that okay? It's a bit late now, but... Uh, I'll tell you how it came about. My father uh, was, among other things, an evangelist and a missionary and stuff. And he had been, we lived in Bristol, and he'd been invited to preach at a little place called Severn Beach. Has anybody ever heard of Severn Beach? Hey, two people have heard of Severn Beach. It's a little village on the banks of the Severn. That's surprising, isn't it? 
uh, pretty much under where the two bridges go across. Hey, go across the Severn. And the, and the person who invited him to preach, he was a farmer, actually. Uh, the farm's still there. His son runs it. And he had caravans on his land. So he said, why don't you bring the family and you can have a caravan to stay in for the weekend. So that's what we did. So uh, mum and dad and my brother Brian, he was, he's been with the Lord some time now, but he was three years older than I am. Uh, Brian and me, and, and Brian had a young lady whose name was Ruth. And so she was going to come too. And then Ruth said, well, can I bring my cousin? And her cousin was a young girl called Muriel. And we kind of knew each other because we were, uh, we'd, I'd come back from the West Indies with my parents uh, about a year before. So we got in the same set in the, the Brethren Church that we were part of, a set of young people. And Saturday afternoon was free time, so um, Brian and Ruth went for a walk, which left Muriel and me. So, strange to relate, we went for a walk as well. And I have a confession to make. And I just want to do it publicly. We held hands. It just happened. We held hands. Two years later, we were engaged to be married. And three years after that, we entered into a covenant. That was 56 years ago, and it still stands. So we come to the God of covenant. What does covenant mean to him? With Deuteronomy 7, 9, Moses tells us what it means to God. Moses says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations, i.e. for keeps. That's what it means to God. And to you and me, to you and me. Hebrews 13.5, God says, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. He's the God of covenant. So, as we sit here tonight, we are party to a covenant. And we're going to start at the beginning and just follow it through. Thank you, Lorna. The covenant with Noah. After the story of Adam and Eve and the breakdown of relationship in uh, the Garden of Eden, civilization began to develop. So, farming, arts, crafts, cities, 
power centers. Civilization was developing. And as the human struggle grows, corruption and violence spread across the earth. And along the way, an almost unknown man is highlighted in Genesis chapter 5. A man who understood what God was looking for and still is. His name, of course, was Enoch, uh, Noah's great-grandfather. Genesis 5.21. After the birth of Methuselah, Enoch lived another 300 years in close fellowship with God. I think the older traditional virgins, versions say he walked with God. And he had other sons and daughters. Enoch lived 365 years in all. He enjoyed a close relationship with God throughout his life. Then suddenly he disappeared because God took him. I have a feeling that that relationship which God treasured so much carried on in the unseen realm. Meanwhile, on the earth, wickedness comes to a head. And with a heart full of pain, God made the ultimate choice to bring it to an end and start again. Genesis 6, verse 8. Noah found favor with the Lord. Noah was a righteous man. He consistently followed God's will and enjoyed a close relationship with him. God has found another. He's found someone else who understands what he's looking for. So to Noah, he says, I will establish my covenant, first mentioned in Scripture, with you and your descendants and life on earth. I'm working with you, but through you, others are going to be blessed. The flood comes and goes, and then in chapter 9, we have the details. God promises Noah that never again will he destroy all life with a flood. And then the rainbow of mercy appears in the sky. I love how in the very last book of the Bible, in Revelation, chapter 4 and verse 3, the rainbow is seen again. And this time, it's actually encircling the throne itself. Because mercy will always be present in God's government of the earth. It surrounds the throne itself. One theologian put it this way. There is to be no triumph for God's sovereignty at the expense of his mercy. It's worth thinking about. 
I think what he's trying to say is this, that no one will ever experience divine judgment until or unless they have outrun infinite mercy. Mercy is always present in God's government. So the covenant with Noah carries a priceless message that holds good. Thank you, Lorna. The covenant with Abraham, we're going to skip very quickly over these. The, after the flood, human independence and pride climaxed in the Tower of Babel. We're going to make a name for ourselves and all of that stuff. And then God finds another man. He's still looking for them. Ladies, I'm sorry, it was a patriarchal culture at the time. Jesus changed it, but okay. Genesis 12. God promises Abraham three things. First, I will make you into a great nation. Second, I will bless you. You will be a blessing, and all peoples on earth will be blessed because of you. And third... To your offspring I will give this land. So there's the promise. Genesis 12. A seed. A land. And universal blessing. That was the promise. Time goes by. We come to Genesis 15. And to be honest. Abraham is struggling. He's finding it tough. And he's struggling with the fact that he and Sarah are still childless. And so, verse 2, Genesis 15, he says to God, Abraham and God, they have these amazing conversations, don't you find? He says to God, what can you give me since I remain childless? He says, we're, we're not even off the starting blocks yet. And all this time has gone by. God says, Abraham, you're going to have a son and you're going to have descendants. So Abraham says, but, okay, but how about the land? I mean, have you looked at these ugly nations recently? I mean, what, what's the chances of, of, of me and my household dispossessing them? What about the land? See, he's a man of faith, married to a woman of faith, says Hebrews 11. But he's going through a bad patch. And God wants to help him through. Because God loves him. And so God takes the further step of adding to his promise a covenant. Chapter 15, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. What an amazing covenant it turned out to be. Because when we get to the New Testament, the seed becomes Christ himself. It's all in Galatians 3. And all those who are in Christ, Jews and Gentiles, the land in the New Testament 
is extended from a strip in Palestine to the whole earth. Romans 4.13, Matthew 5.5, Isaiah 55, and so on. The land is extended to the whole earth, and by the time we get to Revelation, and the end of Revelation, universal blessing is just filling the kingdom of God on earth. And all of that was part of that covenant which God made with Abraham around about 4,000 years ago. But there's, before we move on, there's a secret behind this conversation. And the secret is their relationship. Isaiah 41.8, God speaks of Abraham, how? As my friend. My friend. See, God had found another. God had found another. My friend. Even in the New Testament, James reminds us that Abraham was called the friend of God. And I, I'm beginning to kind of draw from this that God gets his will done through his friends. That's something to think about, isn't it? God gets his will done through his friends. That's what's happening here. Through people who have weaknesses, who struggle some days with laying hold of the promises of God, but who understand his heart and want to walk closely with him. They're his friends. And through them, he's getting his will done. Come back to that. The next one. Thank you. Is the covenant with Israel. So from Abraham, are we all right on this tour? Are we, are we still all together? From Abraham via Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, we come to Egypt and then to uh, the Red Sea and then to Sinai. Okay? Abraham's household has now become a nation or at least an emerging nation. Moses goes up the mountain to God. Exodus 19.3 This is what you're to tell, says God to Moses. Moses is another man who has amazing conversations with God. See, I don't know about you, but it spurs me on. The closer we get to God, the more he talks to us. The more conversations we find we're having. This is what you're to tell the people of Israel. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you'll be to me my treasured possession. The whole earth is mine, but you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Did you notice something? In this covenant, the promised blessings depended on their obedience. If. If. You obey me fully and keep my covenant then so Moses comes back down the mountain goes to the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak and it says all the people responded together 
We will do everything the Lord has said. They were on a high. They'd been delivered from Egypt. They'd seen amazing miracles. And they're saying, we can do it, Lord. We can do this. So Moses goes back up to the mountain and says to God, they're going to have a go. They said they can do it. Three days later, the people are gathered at the foot of the mountain. Because God is going to speak to them directly. I want you just for a minute just to imagine the scene. The mountain has been declared a no-go area. They dare not even touch it on pain of death. There's thunder. There is lightning. There is smoke billowing from the top of the mountain. Then the mountain begins to shake. And then there is an unseen trumpet that grows louder and louder and louder and louder and louder. It must have been absolutely terrifying. And then we come to Exodus 20. And God spoke. And he said, you shall. You shall not. You shall. You shall not. The terms of the covenant, the old covenant, were what we now know of as the Ten Commandments. That would be the moral framework for God's relationship with the nation. And the people just retreated in fear and left Moses to face God. Six weeks later, they were worshipping another god. Their high hopes had hit the rocks, the golden calf. Peter, looking back, Acts 15.10, described the law as a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors could bear. We just couldn't do it. But even at Sinai, mercy shines through and God provides for sacrifices and offerings to cover their sin and a priesthood to represent them in his presence. Mercy shines even from Sinai. Before we move on to the next one, there's two more. We just need to remember something. The commandments that Israel heard that day really were the gold standard of righteousness. They were. By the time Jesus came, the Pharisees had built on top of them centuries of baggage and tradition. And they got lost underneath. And what Jesus was doing with kind of saber-like truth was to strip away all the accumulated baggage and sum up what the law was again. And he summed it up. It's loving God wholly and loving my neighbor. My neighbor as defined by Jesus 
as myself. That's it. That's it. Loving God wholly and loving my neighbor. Paul tells us the law was holy and righteous and good. Romans 7.12. Thank you, Lorna. So we come to the covenant with David. We can put on some firm historical dates now. Sinai and Moses were followed by the exploits of Joshua going into the land, then the period of the judges, then we come to the period of the kings. One day, God spoke again. Psalm 89, verse 20 and following. God says, I have found David, my servant. He will do everything I want him to do. God had found another true friend. Acts 13, 22. Edward mentioned it this morning. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. God had found another. Here was someone else through whom God could get his will done. Still looking for them. Still looking for them. Men and women who want to walk closely with him and be involved in getting his will done. God goes on to talk about David, Psalm 89. With my sacred oil I've anointed him. I will appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever. My covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his throne forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. So the covenant with David says that one of his descendants would sit on the throne to the end of time and beyond. That's quite a, quite a covenant, isn't it? That's what was unique about the covenant with David. Preaching one day at Antioch, Paul said this about David. Acts 13, 23. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. He, of course, would be the one who would reign forever. But then you get, see, I don't know about you, but I just find this amazing. Paul goes on to say this, verse 34. Listen to this. The fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, he says, is stated in these words. Now he's quoting Isaiah 55, verse 3. It says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. What's going on here? When God raised Jesus from the dead, he was keeping his covenant promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. Do you see how God never forgets a covenant? He's following through on what he promised to David 
And the resurrection of Jesus was part of that. And so I begin to see that covenants in Scripture are the story of God's purposes, His promises, and His friends. That seems to me to be the story of these covenants. His purposes, His promises, and His friends through whom He works. I don't know about you, but kind of spurs me on to want to be closer to him and more and more involved in seeing his purposes come to pass. So we come to the last and the most wonderful covenant of them all, as you well know. A covenant that involves every single one of us as followers of Jesus. Thank you. 400 years or so after David, the time of the kings comes to an end in the fall of Jerusalem and the captivity in Babylon. So it was a dark hour in the nation's history. But in the darkness, another prophetic voice sounds out. See, God is always looking for people he can speak to and people he can speak through. His purposes, his promises, and his friends. Jeremiah was the prophet, as you know. Chapter 31. Verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors that day at Sinai. This is the covenant I will make. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. Not just one here and one there and one there. They will all know me. All of them. You see where this is headed, don't you? They will all know me from the least to the greatest. And I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. What a difference from the terrifying experience at Sinai. At Sinai, the Ten Commandments were written with the finger of God on tablets of stone. And they were external. They were terrifying. They were demanding. The people are confronted by the fearsome weight of God's law. And they ran. Said, Moses, it's over to you. But in the new covenant, he says, and believe me, this one is for us. This one is for us. It's quoted in Hebrews 8, almost word for word, for our benefit. 
He says, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. See, this is internal and it's enabling. It's just different altogether. Ezekiel, the beginning of his ministry, overlapped the end of Jeremiah's. And Ezekiel has almost the same wording, not quite. And the difference is significant. Because God says almost the same things through Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. And what God says there is, I will give you a new heart. And I will put my spirit in you. And move you to follow my decrees. That sounds different, doesn't it? I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow. See, there's the gospel right there. There's the gospel right there. A work of the spirit in our hearts and in our minds. Internal and enabling. Paul said in Galatians 3, that the, the law was good. The problem was it couldn't impart life. That was the problem. It couldn't impart life. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I want to... I've done this before. If you've, if you've seen this, forgive me for the, for the sake of those who have. Is that okay? Romans 8.2 says this, Through Christ Jesus, this is what the new covenant is like. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. So here's two laws working in opposition. And I kind of think of it like this. See, take the law of gravity. Do you remember this, some of you? Take the law of gravity. The law of gravity says that if I let those keys go, they won't go that way, they won't go that way, and they certainly won't go that way. They'll go, they'll go that way. Should we try it? See, if I just let them go, do you know, I've, every time I've done that, it works. It's never gone wrong, that one. That's the law of gravity. But then there's the law of aeronautics. And the law of aeronautics says if I build a plane and put an engine in it and stand it on one end of a runway, point it in the right direction and let her go, it will fly. It will fly. It will fly. See, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, he says, has set me free from the law of sin and death. That's the difference between the old covenant and the new one. That's the difference. So Paul tops it off, Romans 8 verse 4, by saying the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us 
They're not out there. They're fulfilled in us who live according to the Spirit. You see how central the Holy Spirit is in bringing salvation through in our lives. Absolutely key. So Jesus said, Matthew 5, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. First in himself and then in your life and mine by his spirit. Do you know David Carr, some of you? David Carr used to say, keep taking the tablets. Okay, it's corny, but <laughs> the tablets. All right, never mind. Fulfilled in us, fulfilled in us, loving God wholly and loving my neighbor as I love myself. What else does God say in the new covenant? They will all know me from the least to the greatest. See, we keep coming back to relationship. They will know me. They will know me. They will be my friends. Our friends know us. They will know me. If you're thinking, well, of course, the people who know God, they're the people who kind of stand on the platform at new wine or fresh dreams or soul survivor, spring harvest, whatever. They're the people who know God. Let me tell you, knowing God isn't about having a big ministry. It really isn't. It isn't, it's less about having a big splash. Knowing God is about loving him, walking with him, and listening to him in our everyday lives. That's what knowing God is about. And notice I didn't say our ordinary lives. There is no such thing as a child of God with an ordinary life. It's a contradiction in terms. In our daily lives. It's about you and me getting to know his voice and to hear his heartbeat. They shall all know me from the least to the greatest. A friend of mine in ministry told me about a young man whom he knew very well, who was 22. And he was at university. And he was one of five guys and girls who, were, who had uh, rented a house as their accommodation, as they do. And everything was going well. One night, this young man, 22 years old, was in his room. It was 2 o'clock in the morning, and the door opened. One of the girls came in, closed the door, and said she was bored. And uh, made it fairly obvious what she thought the solution was. And the young man said, but my best friend wouldn't like it. 
And she smiled and she said, but your best friend isn't here. And he said, uh, yes, he is. Oh, she said, you're one of them. And he said, if you mean, am I a follower of Jesus? Yes, I am. What was going on there? I'll tell you what was going on there. With no eye to see. With none ever needing to know. That young man was living out a covenant relationship with God. That's what he was doing. That's nothing to do with conforming to a code. When the door's shut and nobody can see, that's a heart thing. That's a heart thing. I will give you a new heart. And I will put my spirit in you. And I will move you to do. Are you getting it? A covenant relationship with God. One more priceless thing in the new covenant. It concludes, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Or as Ezekiel put it, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Grace comes shining through. Forgiven and clean. It's all in the covenant. It's all in the covenant. I'm nearly done. I will, I, oh gosh, where did it go? Okay. Some 40 years ago, I was ministering on Dartmoor, a, a church based at Tavistock, and I'll probably have to finish with this. A church based at Tavistock, yeah, I will finish with this. Um, so that's settled, isn't it? <laughs> Where was the church based? Tavistock. That's right, you got it. A church based at Tavistock had hired a youth hostel on Dartmoor, not far from Princetown. And you know what's that way as well, don't you? And uh, they were going to have a summer week together, and, and I was invited to, to be the speaker for some evening sessions at the end of the day. And towards the end of the week, I actually spoke on the New Covenant. And there was a, a dear lady sat right in the front row, I mean right there. And, you know, I, I, she was just listening intently. She was kind of there. And I, I kind of talked about it and kind of how wonderful it was and all of that. And then I said, now I have to tell you there is one condition that you must fulfill in order to be part of the new covenant. And this dear lady, I think she actually stopped breathing now. What is it? Am I okay? And I said, the condition is that you must have proved to be a failure. I'll finish that in a minute. And she let out this enormous <laughs> sigh of relief which everybody in the room heard, I think. 
Why did I say that? Because Hebrews 8, 7 says this. If there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, the one at Sinai, no place would have been sought for another. Then what does he say? But God found fault with what? The people. Not it, the covenant. The people. And said, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. In other words, the new covenant was specifically designed for people who fail. Have you got that? Because that lets me in. It was designed specifically. Finding fault with the people, he said, I'm going to have to have a different kind of covenant. And that's what the new covenant is. Designed for people who screw things up. Some 600 years after Jeremiah, Jesus took a cup of wine in his hand and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. It was his sacrifice. It was his precious blood that sealed the covenant that Jeremiah promised and made it effective for you and me. And whatever we bring to the relationship, the new covenant is for us. It's for us. I said I'd finish, and I will. Hebrews 6 says it's a promise confirmed by an oath and established in a covenant. You know what? I think God means it. I think he means it, don't you? He's gone out of his way so that we know what his heart is and we can rest in his love. Lord, help us. Help us to live out that covenant in our lives. Not just in the big moments, but in the small things. Living out our covenant relationship with God in everything. Because I have a feeling that God looked down at that young man at two o'clock in the morning in that university digs and said, that young man is my friend. I can get my will done through him. See? I can get my will done through him. And I want to be one of those through whom God can get his will done, get his purposes brought to conclusion. I did say I've shut up, so I will. The Lord bless you. The Lord bless you.